So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Abid Firdausi, who's a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the show, Abid. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, well, this is going to be exciting. So what I thought we'd do is I thought we'd talk about your fascinating article that you wrote for developing economics called The Evolution of Mainstream Economics in Five Political Economic Questions. And maybe what we what I could have you do is to talk a little bit about why you wrote this piece, and then we're going to get into the, the sort of the what of the piece. Does that sound good? Yes, yes, that sounds great. All right, good. So why did you write it? Um, yeah, so I actually had um, a background in economics. I did my undergrad and master's in economics in India, and I went on to do an interdisciplinary program in um, development studies later. And currently, I'm doing a PhD in sociology at Johns Hopkins. And it is why it is, you know, even when, when I was doing, even when I was like part of the economics uh, discussions, I felt that what was taught in economic theory was actually so distant from the social reality, especially in the global South, right? Like we were being taught um, uh, economics which, uh, from economics textbooks, which were written primarily by um, economists from say Harvard and, you know, like Gregory Mankiw, for instance, right? And um, uh, none of this actually resonated well with the realities of the global South. So I knew that there was something fishy about, you know, economics while I, even while I was doing uh, the undergrad. And I guess like uh, it took me a while to actually concretize my thoughts on this. And um, and what's, I guess like I wrote this piece um, using this, uh, what sociologists like to call the sociological imagination, which is defined in multiple ways, but it's, uh, it's, it's actually... Uh, for this purpose, like I would say that it's really like the intersection of biography and history, which means that you have to contextualize how, you know, theories evolve, how economic models evolve. And uh, uh, in this piece, I basically argue that, and I'm not the first one to make this argument, and this is, of course, like not a novel argument, but I'm trying to piece together a story of the evolution of mainstream economics. And I basically try to argue that mainstream economics evolved in tandem with or in as a response towards different crisis moments within capitalism. And as capitalism evolved and as capitalism went through different crisis phases, economics also evolved, uh, trying to provide an ideological justification for capitalism. Um, and of course, like the problem here is that uh, uh, capitalism continues to create new problems. You know, problems can never be fixed or completely resolved within capitalism. And then again, new problems arise for economics as a discipline also. And it is through this resolution that economics keeps on evolving as a discipline. Yeah, it it um, and this is why I think that the idea of the fix, uh, the theoretical fix, I mentioned this in my introduction, is important. It uh, it's uh, the, the idea of a fix comes from political economists like and ge radical geographers like David Harvey, who talks about how problems within capitalism cannot be completely resolved within capitalism; they can merely be postponed across space, across time. And you see a similar kind of theoretical fix evolve in economics. And I talk about these theoretical fixes in terms of the five questions in the article. So, yeah, yeah it, it gets a fascinating approach thinking about Harvey's idea that, you know, you, you only move around the problem right. temporarily and geographically. Yeah. Is, is there ever a resolution or does, is, does the whole thing just collapse? Um, but maybe we'll get there. But yeah. let's let's actually start with 
with the question of, of land and Locke. I'm a 10th grade history teacher. We, we teach Locke as sort of the, one of the theoretical fathers of liberalism. And in, in general, he's depicted as a pretty good guy in the textbooks. Yeah. But the more I learn about him, um, the worse I feel about him. So maybe <laughs> you could talk to me a little bit about um, what question Locke is trying to, what is this land question and what is the crisis of capitalism at the time? And what's the problem with Locke's theory on land? Sure. So uh, again, like Locke wrote a lot. Right. Like, so I'm actually trying to pick up like one strand of his particular thought in order to make his make this particular argument. And that's really like his theory of property. Right. So this was really and this is why I say that economic theories and economic models that advance should be contextualized, should be politicized. It's written in specific circumstances. And Locke's intervention comes at a particular moment or it was it served as an ideological justification, again, for capitalist development in its incipient stage, right? Like in its early stage, the so-called discovery of the new world, uh, uh, you know, the so-called new world, new according to uh, colonialists, but of course, this has always existed for centuries, where, uh, and people were living in there, and that's why this is important, right? So uh, you have uh, these vast reserves of land, which is uh, uh, not used according to these emerging capitalist principles of uh, you know, productivity and profit enhancement. So uh, um, the idea is here that land should be consistently improved. It's called the improvement of land. Uh, and this basically uh, uh, was used to justify private property. And uh, so private property could be justified as, justified as long as it, you know, it, it it facilitated the improvement of land and it increased land productivity. And what is the flip side of the story? And one would think that, you know, this is fine, you know, like why, what is wrong in improving productivity of land? But the flip side of the story is that it kind of legitimized the dispossession and genocide of indigenous folks, right? Who were standing in the way of this kind of uh, new emerging capitalist machinery that was taking shape in the 17th centuries. Right. So uh, and so I feel like this is also the basis of a lot of uh, property rights frameworks that underpins much of our development thinking even today. Uh, for instance, the capitalist modernization paradigm, right? Like what the world, what global institutions tries to push for in terms of like private property rights and securing markets and uh, as the sole route for sustaining economic growth and achieving progress. And the flip side of this question is like what, at what cost, right? Like the question of social welfare, the question of like, you know, the people or property or people or profit, uh, which is like the common political slogan today. So all this, I feel like it can be traced to this earlier classical political economic ideas. And that is basically first seen in the terrain of uh, land use. And that is the, uh, you know, and again, this is not a novel argument. Classical political economists, radical political economists do talk about this. Even Marx talks about this, and we'll get to that in a bit. But then that's the part that I highlight as the land question. Very interesting. You know, one of the, I'm hearing this word a lot, to historicize. Yeah. And then you you talk about contextualizing. Mm -hmm. And so I think I understand then what it means to historicize. Um, it's not like a term we use a lot in high school, but right. I guess I'm wondering... Who's not historicizing? I mean, I we teach kids at an early age to to contextualize, to historicize. So this is, seems like it's a response to something that's not going on 
who's not doing that i think a lot of like mainstream education doesn't takes that takes as if like ideas are like eternal in certain ways so what is written in say the 16th and 17th century continues to be valid even today mm. but what i'm what i what i want to say is that this was written at a specific circumstance a lot of like people and and ideas of course like travel away from its context but all these economists are like even classical liberals or political economists they were responding to certain specific moments things that they were seeing around their world right like so uh, so we need to situate that in that specific circumstance in order to understand where they are coming from and why they are writing what they are writing so i guess that's the historicizing economic theory at least that's that's the way i see it and do you, do you think that people in mainstream economics or in education in general aren't contextualizing or historicizing because I, yeah. they're they're lazy or because <laughs> it takes yeah it takes too much work or because there's actually sort of a political agenda there I think a lot of uh, that's a that's a something that I uh, first of all I don't think that mainstream economics tends to take history seriously right that's like one of the biggest criticisms of mainstream economics that it presents a certain dehistoricized depoliticized and desocialized version of the economy as something that is out there where people just interact and magically through the price mechanism everything just coordinates and things just work out and of course it doesn't work out and the mainstream economists know this but they cling on to this belief and these models just to justify this existing system of social relations as the only way of organizing uh society so mm-hmm. um i i definitely wouldn't say that you know all the mainstream economists they have a political agenda while they are doing this but then it just people just don't think about it in these terms right like people just don't use this kind of social i i wish like the mainstream economists have a certain sense of sociological imagination uh you know and and use these kind of uh, frameworks like you know like understand that these theories just don't emerge from a vacuum there is a there is a larger context for this and uh, if you start questioning the principles of economics itself you know which quote Mar- mankeev's uh, book uh, uh, where do these principles come from right uh, and mm-hmm. uh, who frames these principles and what 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 agenda does these principles of economics largely serve so again like this was something that i was told while i was uh, i was thinking about while i was writing this article also i don't want to completely uh say that economists or mainstream economists are bad guys that's not what i'm saying but mm-hmm. the way in which like the system uh the the larger system of the way in which economics is taught kind of comes together to justify uh capitalism as a system and take it as an eternal natural way of organizing things which should not be questioned because you know it has this and we'll get to this in a bit right like it's the whole question of allocative efficiency and equilibrium uh and things just working out without any regulatory intervention or even class struggle right so uh, a very sanitized version of the world one would say which is uh, not at all how the world works yeah it makes you wonder how how they how they get away with it um yeah. so i want to talk now about adam smith and yeah. david ricardo yes. um when we talk about smith with the kids that what what usually the kids say is that he is the inventor of capitalism and mm. then when we talk about david ricardo it's that he invents um comparative advantage i Yes, that's not true. So maybe tell us um sort of what we what we get wrong about Smith and Ricardo and then what what they're trying to correct for or what the crisis of capitalism is that they're responding to. 
Right. So uh, I guess here comes the trade question that I highlight. Like, so we move away from land use to like questions of trade. And of course, like the questions of all these questions are like, so I guess like when you read my article, it might seem like I'm trying to provide a linear historical narrative of how economics evolved. That's not my question because people write about like almost everything. So Locke also writes about trade, right? Like, and Smith also writes about land. So it's not as if like, uh, uh, people should be restricted to these categories. But by and large, uh, what I'm trying to say with the trade question is that uh, Smith is primarily talking about free trade, right? Like, and as opposed to like mercantilist state intervention. So he, he for uh, his whole idea is that market should be less let free, laissez-faire, right? So, and he had this, so what, what was he seeing at this time? He was seeing this emerging pin factories and the whole, you know, the uh, very famous example where uh, pin factories were increasingly getting productive. And he saw this as a new era of capitalist progress. But, but then again, you know, like when you read a lot of uh, works on Smith also, he was a little bit apprehensive of capitalism also. You know? Like he was talking, he was a bit apprehensive of the effects of, uh, uh, you know, unchecked division of labor. He thought that just simply dividing the work process, process where everybody just specializes on, you know, where people just specialize on minute tasks might have an adverse effect on human intellect generally. Mm -hmm. And for that, like he was advocating for public investment in education. This is not something that uh, people, free market enthusiasts who, you know, who are like, who say that they who glorify Adam Smith really talk about. So he was kind of aware of the perils of unchecked capitalism. But then uh, he saw that, again, that this emerging capitalist dynamic had uh, was capable of uh, enhancing productivity. And this was, a, this was something that he was responding to. But of course, uh, this is where I think I like to bring Marx to the question, because Marx had certain... Uh, incendiary responses to Smith, which I think like is very, uh, very powerful in my opinion. Like he, uh, he talks about how economists like Adam Smith simply assume that capitalism comes out this natural propensity, the human propensity to trade, right? To, to engage in barter and trade and capitalism as a system is just a, a societal manifestation of this natural tendency to trade. But Marx says, hey, look, you know, it, it was not like this. It was not as idyllic as you claim to be. This is like he says that the, and he uses this term, the primitive accumulation or the primary accumulation. The first accumulation that happened in capitalism was an inherently violent process, which involved massive dispossession, right? Like so, uh, and there are like sections in Capital Val Volume One, which I would urge people to read, where he talks about how the commercial hunting of black skins signals the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production, right? And he talks about how uh, Smith doesn't talk about any of this, that capital came into the world dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. So phrases like this, which talks about the violence of capitalist, uh, uh, the origins of capitalism, simply that was kind of ignored rather naively by classical political economists like Adam Smith. Uh, but of course, like uh, Smith was again a person who was writing at a particular moment, trying to you know, look in the 1770s while he, and and seeing this beast of this capitalist machinery emerging compared to, say, uh, uh, the system where state regulations were kind of curbing, you know, trying to curb this kind of uh, capitalist dynamic through 
various forms of regulation. And then comes David Ricardo, who uh, whose most important contribution was again on international trade, the logical comparative advantage, where you basically it means that you specialize in goods where that can be produced most efficiently. And this kind of underpins a lot of like international development policies even today. But even the most famous example that we use of Ricardo is like English clothes and Portuguese wine, right? Like, and this is kind of assumed to something that just happened out of the blue. So it is just uh, assumed that, say, English uh, were more efficient in clothes and the Portuguese were more efficient in wine. So they have to basically specialize in these and trade with each other. And that's comparative advantage. But the story that people don't usually talk about is that there was there was an active state intervention. There was a there was strong state relations with English clothes manufacturers and Portuguese winemakers, right? So the state was actively supporting this kind of thing. So the state was there. State was there from the very beginning. Uh, to and it was not just in you know actions of the free market. Then I I feel like this idea that uh, comparative advantage and uh, various political economists have written on this, like Alessandra Mesadri, who coins the term like sweatshop economics, right? So where you basically argue that. And this is like something that we study in international macroeconomics also, the Heckscher-Rollin theory, where which basically argues that capital-rich countries should specialize in capital-intensive products and labor-rich countries should focus on labor-intensive products. The thing is that, you know, you take these things for granted that, okay, like people in the global south, th there is a labor, there, there is a, these are labor surplus countries, so, you know, they can be paid poverty-level wages that, sweatshops existing in the global south can be justified at, uh, as per comparative advantage principles and you mm -hmm. uh, this was you know the uh, currently uh, who, uh, Paul Krugman who is currently a very progressive economist in the 1990s written an article in op-ed in defense of sweatshops right so because he kind of adheres to this uh, logic mm -hmm. also again mm -hmm. so yeah, so, the, you know, this notions of, like, say, uh, struggle between workers and capital, workers trying to defend their rights, their interests, as, you know, uh, uh, and, and the question of larger human development, the question of power here, everything is just absent in this kind of abstract modeling uh, uh, of international trade based on comparative advantage. And I think that is that, that is something that uh, underpins development thinking, unfortunately, even today. That that is the larger trade question that I was trying to talk about, and uh, here I think like the uh, key point here is that uh, the idea that labor is value enhancing, right? Like the idea of like labor as an agent that actually enhances productivity and enhances value. Marx was trying to talk about. The fact that this is really specific to capitalism and it's it's really like within capitalism that you see labor as an agent that enhances value or abstract labor. Okay, I, I shouldn't probably go into way too much uh, theoretical depth there, but then we can talk about this like under the, uh, uh, and that's what I highlight as the labor question. Which comes, uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, this is good. This is a good way of introduction to the labor question. Yeah. So, from what I understand, neoclassical economics is based on this idea of marginal productivity theorem. So, it seems to me that maybe the problem with that is that markets aren't always competitive. And again, right. There's this question of of power, of existing power. So, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. 
Definitely. So uh, I think like the marginal productivity theory basically talks about how capital gets a share according to its marginal contribution. Labor gets a share according to what it marginally contributes to the total, you know, uh, uh, product. So here again, like it then I, I feel like the this was really like a response to the you know, quite radical demands of trade unions and the socialist movement that were kind of, that that were struggling to push for higher wages and like socialism and the communist movement was trying to push for like, you know, questioning the very existence of wage labor itself and trying to abolish this question of like wage labor. This is a completely new phenomenon, right? Like, so uh, that's why I said earlier that this was really a historical specific thing. Like, you know, workers going and, uh, entering into a contract with the employer in order to sell their labor power for a specific duration of the day and getting a wage in return. And that is the only way in which you can meet your needs. Uh, it, the only way that you can actually survive under modern life is whether you engage into a wage contract or not. You can either work or you can either starve, right? Like work as per like capitalist principles or you can starve. So, uh, uh, so the there were like a, a lot of like radical questioning about this kind of system. And uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is that economics actually responds to this by completely ignoring the question of exploitation altogether, by sidelining the question of exploitation. And this is how marginal productivity also comes by saying that, okay, capital gets a share, labor gets a share. So, you know, you cannot really say that there is exploitation here because they are just getting what they deserve uh, based on what they contribute to the production process. And this is also, again, linked to the whole idea that market allocation would redistribute these rewards to the different factors of production. So the profits, wages, interest, everything just gets, people just get what they get what they deserve. Uh, that is really diluting it. But then that's essentially what it is all about. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but, you know, and then again, they also advanced the neoclassical economists at this time also advanced the idea of like an equilibrium, right? But there is, when you talk about an equilibrium, it means that there is no scope for regulatory intervention. There is no scope for like struggle between capital and labor, which was really happening on the ground, you know, like trade unions were actually pushing for like higher wages, uh, uh, which was really like a class struggle, right? So um, the idea of an equilibrium is that any deviation from this equilibrium would is meaningless at, as per like neoclassical economics because it will not improve total utility, right? So you are moving away from exploitation. You're moving away from questions of struggle, which classical political economists like Smith and Ricardo and of course Marx acknowledged and was, was integral to the question of distribution, right? Like they were talking about it, but neoclassical economists completely sidelined this and they moved to, uh, they redefine economics as a study of say microeconomic preferences, individual uh, preferences and utility maximization. So you're moving away from questions of power, questions of struggle, questions of exploitation to questions of utility uh, where, you know, the assumption here is that the system would eventually turn, uh, eventually regulate itself and arrive at an equilibrium uh, and yeah so th of course this didn't this this was this this actually signaled an untrammeled faith in markets right this was essentially what it is so uh people were just believing that the mag markets would magically resolve everything if you just let it 
do its thing and that didn't happen and that's where the state question comes into it. <laughs> right yeah. so that yeah that brings us to that brings us to Keynes yeah. um what what crisis is he responding to so yeah yeah um Keynes you argue legitimizes the intervention of of the state and I want you to talk about what that means in the context of of the 20th century and, and the depression, but also, I guess I have a larger question, which is, mm. as you, you talked about British textiles before, the state right. is, or we could talk about colonialism and slavery, the state is always intervening. Definitely. So why is it that it takes so long for us to get a Keynes who says, okay, here's a legitimate role for the state when it's so clear that the state is needed? Yes. So uh, th that's the thing, right? Like, so Keynes, uh, I, I think you put it beautifully, Keynes legitimizes state intervention in economics. So that is the whole Keynesian consensus, Keynesian macroeconomic consensus that pretty much was the dominant way of thinking about economics from the 1940s to 1970s. So uh, uh, here he is basically, again, Keynes was you know, like he was a liberal humanist in many respects, but of course, like he was pretty much in defense of capitalism. He had like certain, uh, a much more complicated idea about capitalism, but by and large, he was, he had faith in the system. Uh, he was also responding to this in terms of like, you know, the threat of fascism, the threat of socialism, where there was large-scale state intervention in both these systems, right? Economists had to respond to this idea that they were pretty much reinventing the idea of state regulation and state uh, state investment. And they had, uh, Keynes advances this idea of like counter-cyclical fiscal policy, which means that when uh, uh, the economy is going through a downturn, the state amps up its spending, increases its spending. And the thing with the thing with Keynes is that this was essentially, uh, or the thing with the Keynesian consensus is that Keynes became a solution to all of the problems within capitalism. So you have like business cycles, downturns within business cycles, you just need more state investment. You have cyclical unemployment problems, you just need more state investment into say uh, infrastructure or whatever, which is like what's happening even today. But then again, the whole problem with this Keynesian consensus is that there was a lot of internal differentiation, right? Like the questions of gender, the question of race, questions of ethnicity, which were not kind of resolved. So you have like Richard Rothstein's brilliant work on how housing uh, during the New Deal era was uh, furthering redlining, right? Because, because it was uh, fair, house pro uh, fair housing programs were extending mortgages to white families and not black families. So the question of race, the question of gender, all these internal contradictions were not kind of resolved within the Keynesian consensus, but it pretty much like stabilized capitalism as a system. But with all these internal contradictions in place. And it's not just the internal contradiction. And the question is the question is that it's it should not be seen simply as something that is restricted to the nation state alone, even though Keynesian policy is like a national policy by and large. Because at the same time, you have this massive investment uh, in military spending, right? Like through wars. And Utsa Patnaik, who's a political economist from the Global South, has this brilliant work where she talks about how the famines in India uh, were not caused by droughts or any cause of natural food shortage, but it was pretty much due to Keynesian policies getting implemented by the colonial government. And the question again is like whether the Keynesian policies could have been possible without these kinds of colonial adventures, without these military spending later in the 1950s and 60s. Again, you know, the Keynesian consensus also emerges as a way of framing the international order. 
if you're interested, you can read Eric Helena's work, who, who, who I cite in this article also, about how uh, the international order marginalizes concerns of gender, race, discrimination, gender, race, environment, etc. When there were activists and Pan-Africanists like Du Bois uh, who were highlighting these concerns much of this was you know sidelined from any discussion of international order but nevertheless nevertheless the whole keynesian uh, policy of state intervention was used as a you know it furthered the developmental aspirations of the global south where uh, 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 these emerging countries in the global emerging democratic countries in the global south saw state intervention as a way to catch up with the global north, right? Like, so they thought that, okay, you can have a new agenda, a new developmental agenda where through state in, in investment, we, we can basically build up our own countries. But this involved questions again of, you know, whether these countries have the sovereignty to do this. Uh, and at times this involved limiting the power of, global capital when it comes to these things, right? So, and again, moving to the next question here is like, again, the question of institutions, the question mm -hmm. of democracy, right? Like, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so it's so interesting because I, I guess I had never thought about it like this before. What you're mm -hmm. saying is that Keynes comes along and makes it okay for there to be state intervention and I'm yeah. thinking now particularly in the global north. Right. And then when newly independent countries come around in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and say, okay, well, yeah, all right, if you've said it's okay for the state to get involved in economics, right? well, we're going to do that. And then all of a sudden, there is a collapse of the Keynesian consensus. Yeah. And Global North says, no, actually, it's going to be about what you call, what, what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls the anti-state state. Yes. And you're saying, your argument is, is interesting. It's that the anti-state state that we've had since the, the late 70s is a response to you know democracy at home and democracy right. in the global south. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, sure. So the, the this this is again like you know like building on like this new histories of uh, neoliberalism, like um, Quinn's Labodian's excellent work and uh, uh, the ideas of economists as being you know uh, 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 as as a response to this. Uh, demands for decolonization and like developmental aspirations in the global south. So uh, you have this different kinds of ideas that are coming as part of mainstream economics. You have Milton Friedman who is coming in talking, hey, wait, you need to rein in public investment because what we need is like monetary, uh, a sound monetary policy. And then this whole idea of full employment, which was basically the uh, uh, something like a goal of full employment was a goal under the Keynesian, and even though they could never completely achieve it. But, you know, that that goal is completely abandoned because now you uh, uh, in the from the 1980s, what you have is the austerity paradigm. So the private investment doesn't simply get crowded out. Right. Like so you have uh, 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 public investment must be completely reined in employment programs should be cut down. Welfare programs should be cut down uh, uh, and defunding of healthcare, education. This is a story that we are all familiar with and we are living that dystopian dream right now. So uh, nightmare, dystopian nightmare right now. So uh, and you have these economists like Buchanan, who is coming forth and saying that, you know, politicians, they should not be completely trusted because they can engage in rent seeking. But 
the question is like what politicians right like are you like completely labeling all politicians as being engaging in rent seeking you know could there not be like a democratic politics that is possible but uh things like that so and then you have of course arthur laffer coming up with the uh you know uh, uh laffer curve which pretty much sub- ideologically justifies corporate tax cuts and laffer in case you guys don't know won the presidential medal of freedom from donald trump like a few years back so uh all you know like so you have these all these motley crew of economic ideas that were coming in order to delimit democracy right like so it's actually placing limits on state intervention to protect the rights of capital to protect the rights of investors against what is what 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 has been called as like passions of the masses right like so the idea that uh, uh, people do not know what they want you know the democracy can actually be a threat to capitalism in general because that can actually hurt the rights of investors and this is again as you as you rightly pointed out this is what forms the basis of what ruth wilson gilmore calls the anti state state where the repressive apparatus of the state has actually grown like through mass incarceration military spending and so on while the welfare apparatus has actually shrunk uh uh paradoxically it's it's not even a paradox when you actually consider the political economic context of Thank you.